Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy and I am your host for today's episode. This week, the AC team continues the conversation on the issue of whether people can lose their salvation once they have received it. You'll be hearing from myself, Andy, Steve, and Wes, as we wade through technical theological terms like synergism versus monogism, preservation of the saints, provenient grace, and more. I know, it, it sounds like a lot, but you're going to hear where our difference in perspectives overlap and diverge. How do we answer the question, can you lose your salvation? Welcome to part two, and thank you for joining us on the AC Podcast. I think this is a good place for us uh, to transition now into the second part where we're going to stop the focus being on West and Calvinism, we're going to start to shift it. But as we start to shift toward the Arminian position, I think you can already start to see why people like myself lean away from Calvinism. Because what ultimately I hear you saying, Wes, which isn't what you're saying, but this is the way that I understand it, is sure, straw you, don't, me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about salvation because you love God and you're serving God. So go love God and go serve God. And wh- why do you have to be, why do you have to worry about that? No. So from my position, well, yeah, that's right. You don't have to worry about that because God's going to give you what you want. And if you want God, and if you, you want a relationship with him and you're following after him, that's clearly what you want. That's, you clearly have salvation and you clearly will be saved. Now, for the Arminian though, the question is, well, what if I decide to leave the faith? You see, it's a different question with regards to the assurance. On the Calvinist side, God's going to make sure that this happens, but the problem is you don't know that if, whether or not you're elect. And we, we already got into that, so we're not going to go back in there. But with regards to the Arminian position, as once we start putting the weight off of God and onto you, the question is, well, what do I want? And am I going to, to choose God, or am I going to not choose God? Now, all of the arguments, I think, Wes, that you made, many, darn near all of them, I think, can apply to those who are or find themselves more in the Armenian camp. But I want to, I want to kind of build on one that you made, Wes, and and build it uh, just a little bit more, and I'll, I'll use a different passage to do so. By the way, I want to build off of what you said about being reborn and this idea of, well, how do you undo that? Because I think this is actually a really powerful theological argument. We're saying, well, if if you've been, you know, reborn which we we discussed this in in the first part. So if you've been if you've been reborn, I mean, well how do you, how do you undo that? And here's a an interesting passage to kind of further this is it's found in Titus chapter 3 starting in verse 3. And Paul says this to Titus. He says at one time uh we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom we poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of having the hope of eternal life. Now, the the theological argument that's being made here is that you have assurance of salvation because salvation is the sort of thing that can't be undone. 
Once you are reborn, or to put it into a different kind of analogy, once you've been adopted into God's family, you can't be unadopted from God's family. Or to use the language of Paul here to Titus, once you have been washed and renewed, you can't be unwashed. You can't be, if you've been made clean, then what, what, what is God supposed to do? Make you now unclean? If God's given you the Holy Spirit and you're now, you know, a child of God, what is he supposed to, does he take away the Holy Spirit and now you're no longer a child of God? And, and ultimately, I actually think this is a strong theological argument. I heard it when I was first at Bible college. I've yet to forget it. Dr. Lonstein was the one. I even remember his name because I just thought this was such a persuasive argument. How could these things be undone? But that's an argument for assured salvation, is it not? Well, I do. Uh, uh, yes, that you can have assurance of, of your salvation. Okay. I haven't poked a hole in it yet. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, was, I was confused there. I was like, amen, you're making my point for me. Yeah. No. And, and I would say like dovetailing off that, you know, Paul uses the similar language in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, though, Wes, I think this applies to both the Calvinist and the Arminian. This is a good place to affirm. Like, I, I think our listeners can already see that in the last part, Wes was talking about how if we really start digging deeper into it, we'll find that we have more in common than we disagree on. And I yeah. think this is a good case in point where, yeah, it, it almost... Some of our listeners might have thought, okay, man, Andy sounds really Calvinist here. What is going on? Um, it is probably because this is one of those places where we overlap significantly. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. And, and part of the reason that we overlap is that I understand salvation as both the work of God and people. And that I would argue that we see this throughout Scripture that God has chosen the Jewish nation. Like, clearly God chooses and did choose the Jewish nation to bring forth his salvation. However, we also see that the Jewish people screw up all the time, right, and fall away, and God has to constantly bring them back. And you have this moment where Jesus is, is frustrated as, you know, he's fulfilling the law, and he's like, how long I've desired to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you weren't willing, right? And so there's this frustration that, yes, God has chosen, but there is this part of choosing on the individual. And you see this with Paul as he writes his book uh, in Romans. He's frustrated with the Jewish people yet again, his people, mm -hmm. and that the Gentiles are coming to faith, but, but the Jews are not choosing to come to faith. And so when you read Romans, you'll see both language. You'll see the language of God choosing, and you see the language of people choosing. Ultimately, I see that there's a tension there. I don't know if the Calvinists are the many I don't know which one's right. So I have to be humble as I approach it and go, oh, I'm trying to trying to work this one out because it seems to be both. It's messy. See, one of the um differences in how we understand the elect, you know, with reformed like Calvinists on the one hand, and then let's say Arminians on the other hand, is the elect. As I understand it, Wes, for Calvinists, it's very much individual. Yes, there's the invisible church, but God elects individuals, whereas more on the Arminian side of things, you know, they see it uh, more as it's the church, 
Rather than, and so then whether you are part of the church or not, that is, in a sense, up to you um, to, to actually choose that. And so in Romans, for example, uh, where it says, you know, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, uh, Calvinists will understand that on more of the individual kind of terms that God chose Jacob and not Esau. Arminians will see that as okay. Jacob is representative of it's the body uh, of Christ. It's the church. Whereas Esau, that's talking about people who are not elected. And I think that's one difference. Yeah, I think I think it's actually both. Um, and if you read Calvin, he emphasizes that actually that passage in Romans chapter eight and nine is referring to both individual and group salvific purposes. So mm-hmm. just as a preface, we keep throwing the word Calvinism around. Um, Calvinists, Calvinists are not necessarily people who follow Calvin. Calvin systematized a lot of Augustine's theology. Um, right. So I would actually argue that Calvinism is essentially Augustinianism, and Augustine argues that his rationale is actually Pauline. That aside, the... Uh, I would say it's it's a both and. It's both individual mm-hmm. and it's corporate. However, I think you're right, Steve, in that uh, when you put the emphasis on the individual, what we mean by that is we say Christ died for you. So the, when Christ died, he had your name written in his wounds. And so in that sense, Christ didn't die for a nameless, faceless group who you add yourself to. Christ died for you. And mm-hmm. that is what, you know, when in Ephesians, the Ephesians first that I, I quoted before, when it says that uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, he's talking about an individual. Now, both Jacob and Esau stand in for Israel and the Gentile world. I think you can read that corporately as well. But the the reformed emphasis is definitely on the fact that Christ died for people specifically he didn't die for a nameless, faceless group that he didn't know, but would ultimately, when he looks down the channel of time, he chooses people back. Now, uh, I just want to make a, a, a quick comment here, just just for, and, and by the way, I appreciate the, the comment you made I, with regards to how we're using the word Calvinist, and that we are just using it very generally. But one thing that I would just encourage people to be cautious of when they're looking at, say, like the book of Romans or something like that, because I see this so often with, with Calvinists. I actually, I actually think, by the way, that Jesus makes better arguments for the Calvinist position than Paul does. And in particular, Amen. I don't. <laughs> and in particular, <laughs> I just find it fascinating when people that lean Calvinist or that are, you know, are, are Cal- in the Calvinist camp, that they go to Romans and then they'll do things that I just feel like are, are theologically unfair. And particularly when you read Romans in, in the Greek, it's by and large written in the plural. And you'll so often see arguments that are made in the singular or this idea of a person. And then, but when you look, Paul's sp- clearly speaking of a group. He's clearly talking about the Jewish nation who his heart's bleeding for. And so I just, I just say, just be careful, you know, that, that you're being fair. And I hope that on this podcast, people appreciate that we're, that we are trying to do our best to be fair because uh, like, I have lots of friends that are Calvinists. I have lots of friends that disagree with me and I, I love them dearly and I respect their opinion. And, um, and we need to be able to work together. Now I want to turn the corner here because we haven't 
shot any holes in this one yet, but we're going to in a moment. But before we do, I want to ratchet it up just, just another notch about the assurance of salvation that we can have for those people that lean more towards the Arminian position of the choice being uh, on you sort of idea. And this is an argument that John actually makes in 1 John. You can see this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He actually is specifically dealing with the topic we're dealing with. Uh, lo and behold, people in Scripture had the same questions and wanted to address them. And he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. So John is telling you, I've written this letter to those of you out there that are asking, do I have assurance of salvation? Can I be confident in my inheritance of of eternal life? And the argument ultimately that John's making is God loves you. God deeply and profoundly loves you. And this is in fact the same argument that Paul makes in Ephesians. I think of Ephesians chapter 2 as he prays for the church in Ephesus. And he says, there is nothing that can take you from the love of God. Like if God loves you, I mean, what do you have to worry? Like God is for you. He, he, he wants you to be in relationship with him. And this, this leads us into another thing that we need to think about. And that is, what, what do we mean by salvation? What have you been saved to? And a lot of people have this idea that you've been saved to heaven. But you have to understand what we mean by heaven. And Jesus makes this very clear in John as he, uh, as he, as he prays in John 18. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. It's this idea of relationship. You and I have been saved into relationship, relationship with God and relationship with, with one another. So notice, by the way, that I'm bringing that in because I want you to appreciate that that idea of the singular versus the plural doesn't go away when salvation comes. And a lot of Christians get this wrong with this idea that we have a personal relationship with God only. Yes, you have a personal relationship, but do not forget that you have also been saved into a communal relationship, that it's not one or the other, it's both. And that these these two things are, are at interplay. That being the case, then, this, this leads to the whole poking in the Armenian camp. But, but okay, before I can go there, before yeah. I start poking holes, Steve wants to say something. Yeah, um, I, I think there there is also one other thing that I wanted to mention in favor of the more of the Armenian side of the position. And one argument that I've heard many times is the idea that um, God wants all people to be saved, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So for example, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And then in 1 Timothy 2 4, uh, it says, you know, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, and I think there's another passage in, um, was it 2 Peter? Uh, I, I said the tip of my tongue, but anyway, there, there are some of those. So if we then apply, for example, the sort of the ref, more of the reformed uh, chain of reasoning, like West did such a good job of kind of expounding in part one, is if God wants all to be saved, shouldn't that naturally lead to then universalism where all people are saved? But we clearly see throughout scripture that is not the case. There are plenty of warnings against apostasy, falling away from the faith. And there are, in fact, people who 
at least there are false teachers, right? People who Christians who are Christians by profession only and not by the possession of the saving faith and so on and so forth. So that's that's another argument that is sometimes made for the more of the Arminian position. We can move into now the whole poking, and I'm sure Wes has a lot of things that he can kind of contribute to this as well. So let's start going into hole poking. Well, not necessarily hole poking, but just a clarification, because yeah. uh, this is what uh, the Protestant reformers referred to as the prescriptive will of God versus the descriptive will of God. So mm-hmm. clearly, God desires all to be saved, but that doesn't happen. Right. So now if God, if he prescribed it to be so, it would. But mm-hmm. he describes it, right? This is a desire of his in the same way that he says, don't sin, right? When God says, hey, mm-hmm. stop sinning, he, he's not, that's his descriptive will in the desire mm-hmm. for humanity to live up to mm-hmm. how they were created to be and to come back into right relationship. So I do think, you know, there are a lot of those texts and I think they're important, but we do need to clarify between what is a descriptive will that we see enacting in God's divine foreknowledge and a prescriptive will. Because if everything was prescriptive, no one would be sinning and everybody would be saved. But obviously, God makes commands that then the human needs to live up to those commands. And that is where, you know, I I think it's often a a characterization that uh, Reformed individuals and Calvinists don't believe in free will. We definitely believe in free will. You can't Mm -hmm. read Calvin's Institutes and not understand that he is very in favor of free will. Now, it's not libertarian free will, but it is free will. And that is where we need to take seriously God's uh, calls to us to do things like not sin and for um, you know us to live out that desire of the descriptive will to make disciples of all nations and for all to be saved. So there's a, there's a slight difference there. Now, not to go down that rabbit hole too much, but of course, somebody who leans more Arminian is going to say, well, if why why can why do those two wills need to be different? If God wants something to be the case, then then He could do that. Uh, why yeah, place and He why, can, right? So, but He doesn't. So we're both in the same boat. In that, I mean, you, you read whether it's Jacob Arminius or a John Wesley, I, I, they recognize those categories too. Because, I mean, the t- the text of the Bible would just start contradicting itself because we know not everyone's saved. Now, listeners might find this uh, helpful, so I'll just share this real quick as we're just sharing kind of some distinctions. One distinction that I make uh, from my kind of non-named position that's, that's, that's in between is that I, I see a distinction between predestination and predetermination. So I would argue that absolutely the Bible speaks of, speaks of predestination, that we have been predestined, in, but I see that as distinct from predetermined. So, for example, I have predestined my children to go to college. This is my desire. This is my will for them. But I can't force them to do that given the restraints of what I want. I want to respect their autonomy, for example. I want to respect my relationship with them. So I can predestine it, but I cannot predetermine it. So that that's the position I hold, whereas the, the predetermination would say, know that God, this is what God wants and what he does. So he has predetermined that this will happen. And so specifically in the conversation that we're having, the, the, the Calvinists would say that God has predetermined who is saved 
and, and who isn't. Whereas more from the position I'm coming from, God has chosen everybody for salvation, but not everyone will choose salvation. Now, this gets into some hole poking. Uh, d- before before uh, I get into just my own hole poking, let me just bring some scriptural hole poking into this. Uh, there's a passage of scripture that I'm sure people would be uh, upset if we didn't bring into the conversations found in Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. This kind of goes to the point that you were making, Troy. Sure seems like people can come to faith and leave the faith. Yeah, and I, I would ultimately say that that is sort of in the same context of what I was talking about with apostasy before, is that those people are held to a higher level of liability. And I think if that was the argument of the author of Hebrews, I think it would actually make mincemeat of the rest of the book of Hebrews. Because in the next yeah. chapter... I, I agree yeah, with in you. In the next chapter, he says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. And that phrase that we translate to the uttermost is kind of a weird phrase, to pantelis, which we don't really have an English equivalent. So to the uttermost, or actually, I think maybe a clear translation might be once and forever. And so I think if that is what the author of Hebrews is arguing in chapter six, it actually makes chapter seven very contradictory because the author of Hebrews is saying Christ will save once and forever, and that's it. Closed conversation. So I'm actually in agreement with you, uh, Wes, because I think ultimately all you need to do is just back up and notice what the author of Hebrews is saying at the beginning of chapter six. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teaching. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's ultimately what he's saying. As he's saying, hey, listen, I get it. You know, you you got you Jews are used to the sacrificial system, and now you've come to faith. But there's this temptation to want to go back. Listen, you need to move on beyond uh, the elementary teaching because I think ultimately what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it is impossible. Ultimately, what I think he's arguing is that you need to move on, and it is impossible to lose your 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 salvation. But here's the challenge, though, that I see with the position that leans more towards Arminianism. And maybe this is where you land too, Steve, as you're kind of undecided on this. And it raises bigger questions. And that is, if salvation is about our relationship with God and our relationship with people, and the good news is that through the salvific work of Jesus Christ, I can have that relationship, that that broken relationship can be restored, where does that leave God if I come to the conclusion that I no longer want a relationship with God? Yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, there's the Ephesians 2.8 passage that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, uh, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And I think ultimately, if there's a component of you, you know, God sets up all of the machinery and you need to push the button, um, then 
I personally would argue that you do have something to boast at. That you can say, you know, you were put in a better situation, you were more intellectually open, more spiritually open than the guy beside you. And so when, you know, walking down the halls of eternity, this is a, not how I think it's actually going to go. But when you're walking down the halls of eternity and you look to the, uh, over the chasm, over to Hades, and you see those individuals who are, are the reprobate, you can say, I, I got it. I had the intellectual ascension. I had the spiritual openness. I had something. I'm, I was in the right place at the right time. You weren't. And so I think that actually does give you warrant to boast. I, I think this, this brings us to back to the question of, is it synergistic or monergistic, right? So is, is this um, synergistic in the sense that, you know, um, it is God and humanity together? Or is this monergistic in the sense that salvation is a unilateral sort of work of God um, and I think this is sometimes not understood correctly, or at least I should say that sometimes some Armenians make this distinction that, well, actually, I, I've heard this, Armenians are actually Calvinists too. It's just that they're one-point Calvinists, right? So both camps actually start off with total depravity. Right again, doesn't mean that you're yes. as depraved as you could be. Not everybody is a Hitler, right? But it means every aspect of you has been um, affected by sin, so you actually can't pull yourself out of that. Right? If God left you in that state, you would continue in that state forever, and it is only the mercy of God that pulls you out of it. Now, where I think our Armenians would differ is that they they talk about this idea of prevenient grace, right? So that in a sense, God gives you that grace so that you can meaningfully say yes or no to him. Now, the question for my Reformed friends is that doesn't that add to the work of God, right? Um, and I've heard Armenians say, no, actually no, because all you're doing is accepting the gift that has been offered to you, and that is of no merit. All the merit um, lies with the the giver of the gift, the giver of, of salvation, not the one who's accepting it. So then this uh, kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier, like in terms of like continuing in the faith, like, is this something that we can boast about? Um, I, I, I'm not sure it, it is something to boast about, at least as I understand it, because again, the giver of the gift is the one who has all the merit in this case, because I, I didn't earn any of this. And, and I would completely uh, agree with you, Steve. Like, I, I appreciate the argument that you're making, Wes, on, on the boasting, but I, I think that that could be, I think you're right, that could be. But as I'm posing the question and as I'm thinking through it, that isn't what's going on in, in, in my mind. Uh, I, I'm thinking of this from a, from a different perspective, and I think maybe the best way to put it would be like this. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation, but I'm unsure about whether or not you can give up your salvation. So in other words, I, I think there's a distinction between whether or not you can lose it versus whether or not you can give it up. I don't think anybody can take it away. I don't think you can lose it, but I, I'm not sure about whether or not you can give it away. You know, that's probably... Close to where I would land as well, Andy. You know, I just think about how scripture talks about, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, 
to me, when I read that, it means that through the actions of this life, through the things that we do in our relationship with Jesus and his church, that's where we can experience heaven on earth, the goodness of God. And I, I think if I wrestled with anything is this idea that I have to wait to go to heaven to experience the goodness of God. Now, I know that I, you know, I only know in part. I also know that I'm only seeing a fragment and I'm not seeing the fullness of all of who God is in my relationship with him. I won't get that till I'm fully returned to him in in, in heaven. But this is where I think for myself, like maybe salvation is something that I can choose to give up or maybe at bare minimum not choose to walk in the fullness of it. Because if I think about what the Lord wants for me and what scripture says, it's that we'd have life and life to the full, right? And that ultimately is in Jesus. But if Jesus is, but if we're already in communion with Jesus, because of what he did on the cross and because of his Holy Spirit and because of our relationship with God the Father, then I should be able to experience these things now. And so if I can claim that now, then that, that's got to mean that in some way, shape, or form, I'm involved in maintaining that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really good um, point to capitalize on, Troy, because what I'm not saying in having assurance of salvation is that you will feel 100% of the time like you are filled with the Spirit and feel the presence of God and completely in love with God. You, you won't. And neither was Luther, who really solidified a lot of these, these uh, doctrines and understandings uh, in his you know, reformational writings. Uh, he went through long periods of depression, um, as did you know, other uh, influential Calvinists like Spurgeon. They, they had very uh, strong struggles with their own faith and feeling the presence of God. It's like anyone who's married knows that you're not going to feel like you do on your wedding day and your honeymoon throughout your entire marriage. But that's irrespective of whether you know that your spouse is committed to you and you love them, right? The love goes beyond. Yeah, it goes beyond that feeling. We're not going to feel that 100% of the time. And ultimately, my you know, apologetic methodology is evidentialism for the simple reason that when I don't feel like I'm feeling the presence of God, I can fall back on the truth that Christianity is true because the evidence is there. That at the end of the day, when I'm struggling, I can fall back on the reality of the reliability of the Bible, of the existence of God, of the fine-tuning in the universe, you know, so on and so forth, all of these things. And in that sense, my commitment is to the capital T truth even more than it is of Jesus. I'm just so convinced that Jesus is the capital T truth that there's no contradiction there. Let me just add to that, Wes. But first of all, I totally agree with you. And 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 I've had to make those mental ascent moments where I need to like, re-solidify, right? Like, why do I believe this is true? But I think that can happen not only in your head, but also in your heart. In that one of the places that that I've had to come to as a Christian is the commitment that I believe that God is good. And and I think that this is what uh, Abraham had to come to as he wrestled with God. Um, you know, he's having this conversation. God's like, hey, I'm going to bless you, and this is going to be great. And and you got, they're going to have all these descendants and everything. And then he gets done with the conversation and he's like, Hey, by the way, I'm going to head off now and go destroy this town, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And Abraham's like, what? You're going to go destroy him? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to, I'll be back. Right. I'm going to go down there real, real quick and just destroy people. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> but what happens, of course, you, 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 you've read it, right? Abraham gets in this conversation with God going, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's good, right? And he's like, but what if there's some good people down there? And God's like, well, then I won't destroy it. You know, it's going, but, but God's like, well, how many? Right. And he's like, you know, and they start with like, what was it 50 or something? And they, and they start, and, and then Abraham's in this conversation back and forth, back and forth with God. And he whittles him down to a number that he's like, okay, there's got to be at least 10 people in that city, you know, that are good and they're not going to be destroyed. And at the end of that, he says that the God of all will, will do right, right? That he's just and that God is good. And ultimately, that's where Abraham had to just trust. I got to just trust that God's going to judge rightly. And this is the confidence that I have as a Christian, that God is good and God loves me and God loves not just me, God loves all people. And I can trust that the God of all will judge me justly and rightly, and he will judge everyone else justly and rightly. And I, that is my assurance. My assurance is, is in that God. Now, I probably should have said this at the end because this is a great place to kind of like wrap it all up. <laughs> um, but but there is one more hole that we can poke. I'm going to poke it in just a moment. Uh, Steve wants to say something. Yeah. Um, you know, if we were to just kind of tie it back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, you made the distinction, Andy, between losing your salvation versus giving it up, right? And I've heard... Uh, at least one guy put it this way, that it, salvation is not something that you can kind of lose. Like, what do you mean by lose, right? Like, yeah. like, like losing your keys, misplacing it. Oops, what happened there? Kind of a thing, right? Can we lose salvation in that way? I, I don't think so. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you can just simply misplace because you've been careless. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think I think that is possible. That's where, again, I'm using the word, the phrasing of leaning. That's where I lean a, a little bit more than not. Sorry, just for clarification, Steve, you're yeah. saying that you lean toward the idea that you can give it up. Yeah, that's that's correct. So apostasy, uh, as I understand scripture, apostasy is a real possibility. But again, uh, salvation is not something that you can just kind of, oops, what happened to it, kind of a thing. Uh, and the reason for that is because it, this is this is my comfort. Like you were saying earlier, God is good, so He's not going to. There's there's no sh uh, shadow of change in Him. He is faithful, so God loves me, and He is unchanging. So His love for me is not going to change, and that's where I take comfort. And so it's not like, um, you know. Someday, so that's where my assurance of salvation comes in is the fact that he is loving and he's not changing, he is constant. And I think I would agree with you guys. I think I would. I think that that's probably what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter six. You know, the person who tramples underfoot um, the work of Christ, who, who re crucifies Christ again, right? You can't do that, it's impossible. And in that sense, um, I would say, you know, if you could lose your faith, you do it, and you do it every day, and I would too, apart from the saving work of Christ. And, you know, there's this really cool passage in Ephesians 1.14 where it says, you are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of your inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as our, the Greek word is erabon. It literally means down payment. And we actually have copies of first century contracts 
There's one I actually, I posted on my Instagram a couple of months back known as Papyrus Frey, where it refers to an employer putting down an era bone, a down payment of 16 drachma towards a project with the promise of further payment. It's, a, it's an economic term. And that is what we get with the work of the triune God, which I was referring to earlier. I think the father's giving of the son is sufficient to save. Jesus's self-giving sacrifice is efficient, is effective in that it does save. And the spirit in the life of the believer is the down payment that we receive, which is the promise of the fulfillment of the both now and not yet reality of sanctification and justification, right? You are justified, but we're not fully justified. That's going to happen on the other side of eternity. And I, I think when, for clarification for the listener, when I talk about my confidence in my in the preservation of my faith, it's not in my ability to persevere. My confidence results in the triune God who sends the Son by which the power of Christ sustains me with his grace and his spirit guides me into all righteousness. It is, it's a confidence that by the power of Jesus' intercession for us, he is going to bring us safely through. But I do think it's possible for people to, you know, be in the life of the church, um, be hearing that message and reject that. But ultimately, I would say they, that's because they don't have saving faith to begin with. And now for the final hole poking, and we will wrap up this monster of a conversation, um, which I have thoroughly enjoyed, guys. And that is the concept of salvation and whether or not you could lose or apostatize isn't just one this side of heaven, but has been asked and rightly, well, what happens when I do go to heaven and I am with God? Can I? Can the fall happen a second time? Uh, can I choose to leave God? Uh, is it possible to lose your salvation in heaven? No. <laughs> <laughs> can I just say no? Uh, and listen, like my, I, I know that sounds really short and abrupt, but I mean, my reason for saying that is because when scripture talks about the second coming, it's pretty explicit that that is it, you know? Um, it's not like, okay, all right, this is bus number two, but we're going to make one more loop. You know, it's, it's, it, there's finality to it. So I don't think a person needs to be concerned as to whether or not they would lose it in heaven once we're there, I don't think we're going to be concerned with anything else. So the question, though, that we have to wrestle with is what's the difference between Adam and Eve walking with the God in the garden and choosing to fall away versus us in a new heaven and a new earth walking with God and choosing to fall away? Well, I think ultimately the plan of God's salvation, which in both um, Peter's letter and in Revelation, it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And so it you know, the cross was not a contingency plan because God was like, oops, I messed up. I made these people and they rebelled against me. And that's where I think the new heaven and the new earth was always the plan. It was always the intention. The garden was beautiful and it was good, but it wasn't perfect in the way that the new heavens and the new earth will be perfect. And it's always been a shadow like the Mosaic law 
and like everything else that we see in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, of something that is better, that is greater. And so I think that, um, and there's, you know, debates about the order of this, but I think God created the world with the full intention of Adam and Eve rebelling. I think he knew that would happen. It didn't catch him off guard. And that the sending of the Son, that Trinitarian unity in the work of salvation, was always the intention, not for our benefit, but for the glory of the triune God. And the beautiful thing about that is that he invites us into that glorification process, that it's personal and that it is a God who loves us, who doesn't need us to accomplish that. He can do it all on his own, but he, he does it through that invitation. Man, that is a very difficult thing to rationalize. Like the idea that Jesus having to come and save the world and new heaven, new earth was always in the plan. You know, I can imagine for, you know, there may be people even listening to this podcast or someone who doesn't even know Jesus or is interested, having a really hard time imagining God creating a world that he's going to then have to restore. That's very, very difficult. And I know that, script, like we said earlier, script, there are mysteries of heaven. We only know in part. Those are all things that scripture speaks to and for good reason. <laughs> but I know you're saying that you feel there was only a plan A, but how do you s share with someone when it sounds like it's a plan B? Maybe God knows something we don't. E yes. <laughs> I, that's the only way I can rationalize Calvinism, by the way, is that I think Calvinism could be true. I don't think it is, but I think it could be. And if it was, I think that there has to be more going on that we are clearly unaware of or has not been revealed to us. Yeah, uh, Steve, you were going to say something? Yeah, and even I remember listening to a dialogue between a Calvinist, Calvinist and a Molinist once, and that was the Molinist response, is because in Molinism, you talk about this idea called middle knowledge, right? God's understanding, God's knowledge of things that would be the case, uh, given certain conditions kind of a thing. And the Molinist was saying, that could be the extra resources that we, you know, like Calvinists say, you know, for example, maybe God knows something that we don't. And Molinus might say, yeah, that is what we call the middle knowledge. But having said all of that, I think even from a perspective of, you know, so the more on the Arminian side, and I keep saying more on this side because, like you said earlier, Andy, our positions are not really named because I'm not comfortable necessarily calling myself an Arminian. Yeah. Um, but I think even from that kind of a position in heaven— um, we're not going to fall away from God in, in the same way that, you know, I have the free will, for example, to go, I know this is a big graphic, but to go and eat horse manure, right? But I'm not going to do that. I'm way too smart for that in a sense, right? So uh, so that this, I think, kind of connects with what Troy was talking about, too, because I remember uh, one, of my, one of our teachers, Andy and my teachers, Clay Jones, who taught us theodicy and evil and suffering, he said, this life that we have right now, our earthly existence, we're learning the greatest lesson that any human being can learn. Love God, hate sin. And we're learning that right now. And so, so that, you know, in heaven, right, and, we, and especially as we see God in, in his glory and all of that, like, we're not going to want to sin anymore. And we will have learned the lesson, love God, hate sin. Look 
how glorious he is. Look how lovely and lovable he is. And look how much he loves us. Why would I want to choose anything but? This kind of leads to our uh, uh, final kind of argument that that is made often when this sort of line of reasoning is is thought about, which I've met many people over the years that have thought through this. And one of them is, is what... Um, uh, Steve was just talking about like the, the basically we're living in a history lesson on the horrors of of evil. The the other idea is something that's referred to in philosophy and theology as epistemic distance, and what this refers to is that there is a level of knowledge of God distance that exists between us and God. That God is you know that which as Anselm said that which none greater can be conceived, right? Like. If you think about it, and this is something that Kierkegaard was was thinking about, is if God is like as powerful as can be and as wealthy as can be and as beautiful as can be, then God is that which, you know, is the most seductive, you know, force in the universe, such that if God were to reveal himself to you, you couldn't do anything other than, for example, if you are confronted with God's power, you would be terrified. If you were confronted by God's beauty, you would be seduced. If you were, you know, presented by God's wealth, you would be wooed. So sort that sort of argumentation. And so the argument then is made that there must be a level of distance between us and God that we don't see God face to face. We can't. But when we are we have been sealed in the Holy Spirit, but there is a day coming when we will meet God face to face. And that seal will be complete when we do see God for all of his glory. And the those that lean more toward the Arminian position would say that God's glory is currently veiled, but there is a day coming in which it won't be. So in other words, when we see God through Jesus, we are we are seeing the king taking on the form of a servant. This is Kierkegaard's argument. We don't have time to get into it, he, but he makes this whole this whole argument that God has come in humility and revealed himself to you so that you actually can make a choice for God or not without being overcome by the presence of who God is. But that there is a day coming that we will see God face to face, that the veil will be removed, and that we will be sealed forever with him, having already made that that choice. And I have no idea if that's the correct a correct answer but what it is for those of you that have followed us long enough you know that philosophically speaking at least it's a possible answer and a possible answer demonstrates that we don't have a logical contradiction and that we don't have to be afraid that there's going to be this second third fourth fall sort of idea that there that it is conceivable that uh that there that there is an answer to this and this again goes back to this idea that there's, I have good reason to place my trust. Knowledge place my trust, but in my heart place my trust in who God is. And, and let me just say this as, as you know, the, re, the resident reform, um, the, the, you know, ca- Calvinist in residence here. I think, uh, you know, everyone who holds these positions holds them because they're honestly trying to interact with what we see in the text of the Bible. Yeah. Now, I believe my position is true. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold it. And actually, these are secondary issues. I believe that these are the most important secondary issues because they basically bleed into the rest of your theology and apologetic. However, 
I think the beautiful thing about, you know, us four holding different opinions is that we can still go out as brothers in Christ. We can still proclaim the gospel. This affects none of our witness with one another. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing about the unity of Christ and the, the oneness. If anybody wants to uh, maybe understand these a little bit more in visual form, if you go to wesleyhuff.com and you go to my infographics tab and you scroll down, there's a theology section and I actually have a number of uh, infographics on the doctrines of grace, God's sovereignty, the golden chain of redemption, and God's divine decree that might just help tease out those things if people are interested. And let me also just throw another resource out there as well. Uh, Donald Whitney wrote a book called How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? What the Bible Says About Assurance of Salvation. It's an excellent resource if you want to go deeper. I'm also a recording artist by the name of Scribe Music. You can check my music out uh, on anywhere. Um, I'm on all platforms since we're plugging things. (laughs) Um, I think then... I mean, I think we're coming to a close here. We're coming into a landing. So let's just make it extra clear for our listeners. I'm going to ask each of you, and I'm going to answer this question myself. Um, let's start with you, Andy. Can we, as Christians, lose our salvation? Thanks. I'm glad that you're doing this. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you. No, you cannot lose your salvation. I am persuaded to believe that you can give it up. Wes, can we as Christians lose our salvation? Gloriously, beautifully, and joyfully, no. All right. Troy, can we as Christians lose our salvation? I do not believe you can just lose your salvation. I believe that it is a gift that you can choose to give up. Yeah. I myself will say much the same. Can we as Christians lose our salvation? I'll just keep it simple because I think you guys do us to really well. Uh, my answer is, in short, no, we can't. Um, and how glorious is that? Here's salvation that we cannot lose. Hey, listeners, thank you for joining us for part two of Can You Lose Your Salvation? If anything we said today struck a chord, maybe you have some questions or wanted to maybe understand more of the Arminian or Calvinist position, feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com. We would appreciate it and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on all of your favorite streaming platforms. We're on all of them and follow us on social media. We love to hear from you. We appreciate the interaction and we can fight the algorithm together every single time you decide to comment, like, or share. But until next time, love God, love people. Bye for now.